Good morning, everybody. Hi. Thank you. All right, we got two people awake. Awesome. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in online. For those of you worshiping with us online, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians 2. Galatians 2 is where we're going to be this morning. As you're turning there, I would like to thank um, Leslie Rico. So during the summer, Leslie, oh, kids, you are dismissed to Grace Place. Kids, you can go. There will, there will be a revolt if I didn't send them. Um, kids, go have fun. We love you. We'll miss you. We'll be praying for you. Go enjoy learning about how God loves you. Um, so this summer, Leslie Rico took over our um, social media accounts. And so if in the last four months or so you've thought to yourself, man, our Instagram looks way better. It does because Leslie's in charge and I'm not. Yes. Amen. Yes. She has done an awesome, fantastic job to just make to use the technology, use uh, another way for us to connect even when we're not together. So if you don't already, follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. You get cool updates, um, reminders of things happening, as well as uh, as we are going through Galatians. And we're remember, we're, we're committing to reading one chapter of Galatians every day, Monday through Saturday. Uh, so Leslie's been doing some creative ways to, to be able to kind of help refresh us, remind us of those things, including uh, having different people at the church share reflections, share what they've been learning, what God's been teaching them through Galatians. So if you're interested in sharing a little bit of what God uh, has been, excuse me, doing uh, in and through Galatians, you can talk to Leslie, or I'm sure she'll reach out at some point soon, but you can talk to her, uh, and she will help you put that together and, uh, and get you connected that way. So thank you, Leslie, for everything you do for us. Um, all right, so Galatians 2, like I said, is where we're going to be this morning. So last week, if you were with us, uh, or if you missed out, we did a little bit of an excursion because we kind of started and are just focused on verse 10 of chapter 2, um, which says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And it was, so we kind of took a little break and talked about what is God's heart for the poor, what is God's heart for the oppressed, and the responsibility that we as believers have to the poor and the oppressed. And so before that, two weeks ago, we looked at the first 10 chapters of chapter, or 10 verses of chapter 2, in which Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He brings with him Barnabas and Titus uh, to have a conversation with the leaders that are in Jerusalem about the gospel, to get everyone on the same page. By this point, it's been almost 20 years since Paul has been uh, converted, since Paul had that interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he has been learning and growing and then also teaching and preaching and planting churches along the way. And there has been false teachers who have come into the church saying that if you are a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, you can believe in Jesus, amen, but you also need to follow the law and specifically be circumcised to truly be part of the family of God. And Paul says, no, that's, that's not true. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so Paul goes up to Jerusalem to talk with the leaders about the gospel, to get everybody on the same page regarding what Paul was preaching, what they were preaching, who's on what side, what's the plan, what are we doing, where are we going? And so they have a conversation and they realize everybody's on the same side. That the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel of grace and faith, the gospel of hope and repentance and new life and redemption was in fact the same message the apostles themselves received from Jesus himself. So all of them were preaching the same message of grace through faith in Christ alone for salvation. And so because of that, it was decided since everybody's pulling on the same side of the rope, we're all on the same team here. Paul, you continue to reach out to the Gentile community. You have been blessed to do that. So you keep reaching out to the Gentile community and keep on going into those hard places to 
proclaim the gospel, and we, some of the apostles, are going to focus on the, the Jewish community, those who, we're going to go into the synagogues, and we're going to talk about how this Messiah that they are longing for has already come and gone. It was Jesus Christ himself. And so there was this idea of this sending out of Paul and Barnabas, you guys go and continue doing what you have been doing. So by the verse 10, everything's good. Everyone is good. We're all on the same page. There's no need to panic. There's no need for any more dissension or division, no more confusion. Everything is good, except for, you know, the tiny matter of what we're going to look at today where Paul and Peter have this face-to-face public confrontation, which at the very stake of it, at the heart of it, is the truth of the gospel and whether or not everyone is actually living out this gospel and whether or not they're actually breaking the church from within. Other than that, everything's great. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to talk about a couple of topics that are very relevant for the church today. We're going to talk about confrontation within the church and what that looks like and what that should, can look like. And we're also going to talk about the possibility of drifting from the truth, that yes, you may be a believer. Yes, you may have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. But even with that, it is still possible to drift away from the truth of the gospel. And so we're going to talk about what that may look like and how we can avoid doing that. So a lot of work today, this morning, so I'm excited to jump in with you guys. Let's buy our heads and uh, let's pray and we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to come together, to worship you, to enjoy you, to enjoy this community you have built. You have established the church. It is it is your gift to the world. It is your way of working out your plan of redemption, of redeeming all things back to yourself is through the local body of believers. And so, God, we thank you for this place. And though sometimes it is hard and messy to be in community with one another, it's a great joy and blessing. It's a great gift that we have. Lord, I pray that we would all be actively seeking to build one another up, to spur one another on towards good works, to encourage one another and to lift one another up as we seek as a church to proclaim Christ and become more Christ-like, that we would grow in our own personal walks with you, but also in the way that we engage with the world, that we connect with the world outside of the church, that we would be proclaiming Christ in our actions and with our words. God, as we open your word this morning, as we study, as we hear from you, that's exactly what we've come to do, to hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way, because you have a message for us this morning. Lord, I pray that the words, as I preach, the the words that I speak and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying and acceptable in your sight. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Galatians 2, uh, starting in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew... How can you force the Gentiles to live 
like Jews. We're going to stop there. That's, that's what we're focusing on this morning, just these couple of verses, because there's a lot going on here. So Paul and Peter have this face-to-face confrontation. Confrontation, hard conversations, they're not a bad thing. They can be good and helpful and even natural when done well. I say it all the time here. Christianity is a team sport. We need each other to be able to do this life well. And I would go so far as to say, I don't think you can be a Christian who is growing and maturing without community. We're made for it. We are, we, our God is a God of community. He has eternally been a community unto himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with one another. We see in Genesis in the creation accounts that something before sin enters the world, there's Adam and there's the animals and there's the trees and it's awesome, but God says something is not good, something is not right, and it's that Adam was alone. Adam needed community. We are built for community. When Christ ascends into heaven after he dies and pays the penalty for our sins and he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven, what starts? They they look around and they say, how do we live this life? How do we do this Christianity thing? How do we live like Jesus is here even though he's not physically here anymore? And what happens is the church because we are made for community. And so if we're going to be involved in one another's lives, if we're going to be connected in Christian community, situations are going to come up where we are going to have conflict with one another. Why? Because though we have Christ, though we might be saved, though churches tend to be filled with people who express their faith in Christ, though our sins have been paid for, we still have sin within us. We still live in a sinful world, and we will continue to sin. To be a Christian does not mean you are perfect. It just means you recognize you aren't. It's a common critique of the church. The the church, that Christianity, it's all full of hypocrites and liars. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot worse than that. It's a bunch of people who aren't well. The church should be a bunch of people who realize they need help. Jesus says in Luke 5, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you believe you're healthy enough on your own, you have missed the gospel entirely. So yes, the church is full of a variety of people working through a lot of their own stuff, a lot of their own sin, a lot of their own issues. We aren't perfect. Christians don't have a magic bubble that keeps us from temptations and trials and evils of this world. The church is made up of a bunch of different kinds of people in varying stages of their faith, some who aren't even believers yet, who haven't even put their faith in Christ, who are just still asking questions. And if that's you this morning, if you're still wondering where you stand with God and with Christ, Amen, I'm so happy you're here this morning, and I pray this morning God would reveal to you his heart for you and his love for you and that he would call you to himself. The church is made up of a bunch of people in varying stages and places, working out their faith, trying to understand what it means, so it's gonna get messy. If we're doing this right, if we are in community with one another and truly engaging in one another's lives, there will be times it's gonna be hard. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to have times where we need to clear the air between each other. We cannot run from issues and conflicts between us. If we are constantly sweeping everything under the rug, constantly avoiding conflict, constantly avoiding confrontation, we just try and ignore it and try and ignore it, you sweep enough stuff under the rug, it's going to be a huge pile that somebody's going to trip on and get hurt. When churches avoid confrontation, when individuals within the church avoid confrontation, that's how churches splinter and separate and even die. Because people won't deal with their conflicts. 
Because what we see here this morning is two Christians, two established, grounded, mature Christians having a conflict with one another publicly. The issue between Peter and Paul, though, it's, it's much bigger than just annoying quirks. It's, just bigger, it's much bigger than somebody said something mean to somebody else or you know, two people brought the same thing to the church potluck or somebody was sitting in somebody else's seat in worship. It's much bigger than that kind of thing. What's going on here at the heart of it is the living out, the actual execution of the gospel. Peter comes down to Antioch to see the church there. Now, the church in Antioch is very different than the church in Jerusalem. Antioch itself was kind of like a mini Rome. It was a a hub of commerce. It was a lot of different people coming together. It was a mixed bag of all kinds of different people living together. And so while the church in Jerusalem was going to be mostly Jews who became Christians, the church in Antioch is going to be almost probably 50-50 Jews to Gentiles. So it's a lot different feel. It's a lot, it, it, there's a lot more conflict already built within the church itself just based on you have these two groups as we've been talking about for the last month, these two di- very different groups of people trying to do church community together. And so Peter comes down to visit, and this confrontation happens between Paul and Peter. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. For those who have grown up in church, I mean, we got Peter. He's the leader of the disciples, right? Every time he's listed, the disciples are listed in the Bible, Peter's number one. He's part of the original 12. And not only that, he's part of the inner three. Of the 12, there was Peter, James, and John. He was in the room when Jesus raised the little girl from the dead. He was on that mountainside when Jesus transfigured himself. Peter walks on water with Jesus. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, it is Peter who gets this boldness and courage to to begin proclaiming and preaching the gospel with no fear and no reservation. He really becomes kind of the leader of the leaders and he is pushing the church forward. But just because Peter is a big deal in these circles doesn't mean he is above the accountability that was needed in this situation. Because no one is above that. You look at the news and you look at how many times in the last couple of years, how many different churches, how many different pastors and church leaders have fallen into controversy and sin. Almost every one of them, you'll see that the church, that community, set up rules and set up regulations where the leadership somehow were above them. They found a way to insulate themselves and protect themselves so nobody could hold them accountable for the actions that they were doing. And eventually, the justice of God finds them and everything comes crumbling down. See, just because you have a name or a title or a reputation or you have some power or money or influence does not mean you are above the expectation to live in a way that loves God and loves people. And so this issue is between Paul and Peter. We've spent a lot of time talking about Paul and his credentials and how he was this Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was zealous for persecuting the church and then has this miraculous interaction with Jesus. Jesus saves him. He gets transformed. As you read through the New Testament, the bulk of it is written by Paul himself. I mean, if you're talking about New Testament outside of Jesus, the the big names that are going to come out over and over again are Peter and Paul, and they have an issue with each other. Paul says that Peter is acting hypocritically, he says in verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
This word hypo, hypo, uh, hypocritically or hypocrisy, it's a word that comes from the theater. It's an acting word. It's, uh, so at that time during plays and acting, uh, they didn't have a lot of actors, and so most of the time, one actor would play multiple different parts, and the way they would distinguish what part they were playing was they would be wearing a mask. And so the idea of speaking from behind a mask, speaking with a hidden face, is this word hypocrisy. Speaking with two faces, is this word hypocrisy. You're two people at once. And so Paul confronts Peter face to face and publicly, not to embarrass him, not to cancel him, but because what Peter was doing was a public issue that was affecting other people. And so it caused even Barnabas to be led astray. And so Paul says, this is a public issue. This needs to be dealt with publicly. Not everything needs to be dealt with publicly, but this was an issue that was affecting other people, that other people were falling away because of it, and so it needed to be dealt with publicly. Paul's motivation through all of this, throughout all of Galatians, all that we have talked about, Paul's motivation is always the gospel, always unity within the gospel. He is not trying to destroy Peter. He's trying to build him up. He's not trying to hurt him, but bring healing to this brokenness. He's trying to find unity and restoration, and that should always be what drives Christian confrontations, Christian arguments, Christian issues. When we have conflict with one another, unity and restoration should be the driving force all the time. This was not about theology, right? We, we've already covered that earlier in the letter, that theologically, what they believed, what they were preaching, that was the same thing. Peter wasn't wrong in what he believed. He was wrong in how he was living out what he believed. Everyone was on the same gospel page. He was wrong in his actions. This is about accountability in living out the truth. And this is a place where the church, and when I say church, I mean Big C Universal Church, this is a place where we sometimes fall short. Under the guise of, well, I don't want to offend anybody. It's not my place to say something. We all too often avoid approaching others when we observe them pursuing not only sin, but just inappropriate and reckless behavior. And yes, look, my, my faith is my faith, right? You have your faith, you have your personal walk with God, I have my personal walk with God, yes and amen. But at the same time, every Sunday we walk into a building with a big lit up sign that says church on it. You are a Christian, you have been baptized. At some point, you publicly proclaimed your faith in Christ. We live in a place and a time, I assume, where you are not hiding your faith. You are not hiding who you are and what you believe in. We live in a country where we're allowed to do that. Our faith is public. It's our bio on our Twitter handles. It's everywhere. And so because of that, because we live our faith publicly, as we are called to do, in doing that, we are inviting in people to speak into our lives to tell us when they see us acting in a way that is not in line with the faith that we profess. We are invited to be part of the family of God. We are, Scripture will call us, brothers and sisters in Christ. So thinking just literally about it, if you see your sibling, if you see your relative actively pursuing decisions or actions that would be harmful or detrimental to their lives or the lives of others, wouldn't you at the very least have a conversation with them? If not, go above and beyond to do whatever you could to stop them and heal them and save them. How much more so then 
when we see within the church, when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ pursuing things that will lead them away from God, away from the light, away from the will of God, and into darkness and pain and separation from God, which will bring about discipline on them, should we not say something? Should we not go to whatever extremes we can go to to keep them from falling away, from walking away, from stumbling away? We are called to pursue one another, to lift one another up, as we prayed this morning, to spur one another on in good works. But that also means spur one another on, encourage one another to stay in line with the will of God. And so we are called to pursue one another and have a conversation with one another. By publicly proclaiming our faith, we are letting ourselves be open to inviting other believers in to speak into our lives. By joining a church, by being part of a community, we are doing that as well. And it's as simple as, hey, look, I know you're a believer. I know you're a Christian. You say you believe this, but here's what I'm seeing. And when your actions are not lining up with what you believe, what's going on? Where, what, where's the disconnect? What, how can I offer myself to you? How can I walk along with you? What, what is going on? Help me understand this. It's a simple conversation. Paul's confrontation was to Peter's face. It wasn't subtweeting. It wasn't passive-aggressive comments. It wasn't a long Facebook rant. It wasn't an awkward text. He didn't just say, well, Peter's in sin, so I'm just not going to deal with him anymore, and I'm just going to cut him out of my life. No, he goes face-to-face -face and has a conversation with him. We have to be willing to actually have that conversation, to speak up, and talk to one another, and engage with one another beyond just fine, tired, busy, see you next week. If that's something that you struggle with, if that's something that you want help with, one of the many reasons we have elders in our church, to mediate and to bring about unity and restoration, to bring about peace within our community. We're always happy to help and get involved. And we see in verse 12, Normally, Peter would eat and fellowship with Gentile believers. He would treat them as brothers and sisters because that's who they were. It wasn't weird or awkward. There was fellowship and friendship. Peter would be with them. He was eating with the Gentiles. But these other Jewish leaders came down and he drew back. He separated himself. This wasn't just he stopped, he avoided them. He cut off communication with the Gentile believers. Jewish leaders show up and he acted differently. He distanced himself to appease these Jewish Christians who we can infer were in this camp of believers we've been talking about that believed that Gentiles could only truly be saved through the law and circumcision. See, eating with Gentiles wasn't a sin at the time. It just wasn't really ever done for Jewish leaders, for Jews in general. It was more about a, a, a serious taboo and an example of what humans had done to the law that God had given them. Because God's law, God instructs the Jews, it says, do not eat unclean food. There are certain foods restricted in their diet. Do not eat these things. And so over time, what the leaders of the Jewish community did, what the Pharisees did over time was say, okay, well, the law says we are not to eat unclean food. So what we're going to do is because Gentiles eat unclean food, 
and eating at that time was much more like tapas, passing around, kind of family buffet, everybody's kind of grabbing at things. And so because there's the potential of the way that food was served at that time, there's potential that I might accidentally eat some unclean food in this setting instead of just putting myself in that position, then we're going to say we're not allowed to eat with Gentiles. God doesn't say that, but over time the Pharisees decided that to truly be a good Jew, you don't eat with Gentiles because you might accidentally eat unclean food, maybe. It's called putting a hedge around the law. Here's what the law says. We're going to put something around it to keep us from going nowhere near it. This whole situation might seem a little like some high school drama, right? Who sat with who at lunch and who didn't sit with who at lunch? But it is much, much bigger than that. Because meals for them back then, it was a driving force. It was a huge, important part of their culture, much more so than it is for us today. I mean, let's be honest, for most of us today, when it comes to meals, what's fastest, what's cheapest, what can I eat easiest while also texting and driving? That's usually how we think of food. For them at that time, in that culture, eating a meal was to stop, to slow down. It was a long, drawn-out process. It was an intimate, relational act. To invite someone to eat with you, to invite someone to your table, into your house, was to offer them your respect, your love, your friendship. And to accept that invitation to show up was to do the same. It was an act of peace and goodwill toward one another. It's why the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus when he's always eaten with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and anybody else. Because to associate them with them in public, well, that's one thing, I guess. We don't love that about you, Jesus. But I guess it's one thing to preach to them, but to go into their homes, to sit at their tables, or to invite them to a table that you were leading was a level of relationship and intimacy that the religious leaders were confused, uncomfortable, and just angered by. And even beyond the importance of sharing a meal with someone, the reality of what was going on here, this confrontation, this conflict between Peter and Paul really comes down to the gospel as being under attack by just by how Peter was treating they're his brothers and sisters. And if anybody knows, should know better. If anybody should have a clear understanding of what this means and what the ramifications are of this, it should be Peter. You don't have to turn there if you're looking for something to read this week besides reading our chapter of Galatians. In Acts 10, Peter is relaxing on a rooftop. And God gives him a vision. This big sheet, like a bed sheet, comes down from the sky. And in it is a bunch of animals, all kinds of different animals. And God speaks. He hears, Peter hears a voice from God, and the voice says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter decides he's going to argue with God, because that always works out for him. He says, I can't do that, voice in the sky. That, those animals are unclean. I can't eat those foods. They're unclean. They're not kosher, approved by Jewish law. And God replies and says, don't tell me what is clean and unclean. I decide that, Peter. And the sheep goes back up into the sky, and it comes back down again, and it goes back up. He does this three times, because Peter, sometimes it takes him a few times to understand things. And so right after Peter has this vision, he's now sitting on this rooftop and he's thinking, what does that mean? What, what is God trying to tell me? What is God trying? What, how does this play out in my life? And there's a knock on the door of the house. 
And Peter is asked to come to a centurion's house, a Gentile convert to Christianity. And so Peter goes with these, uh, with these servants, and he goes to this man's house. This man's name is Cornelius. Cornelius invites him. He says, the God told me to send for you that you have a word for us. You have a word for me and my family. So what do you have to say, Peter? And Peter says, ah, I don't know. He starts talking because that's what Peter does. And he starts proclaiming and preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his friends and family. And while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit descends on these men and they all get saved. Peter stays in Cornelius' house for a few days. And then he goes up to Jerusalem and he goes to tell the other leaders about this cool thing that happened, about this vision with the sheet. And then right then there's a knock on the door and how he had this interaction with these Gentiles. And now they are brothers and sisters. They're Christians. They got the Holy Spirit in them. It's awesome. And the other Jewish leaders say, you did what? You ate with who? How dare you, Peter? What are you thinking? And so Peter responds in Acts 11 and he says to them, Look, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter has this exact situation about what it is that God is doing and how God is calling all people, Jew, Gentile, and everybody in between to himself. And then you fast forward to our passage in Galatians 2, and Peter's basically in the exact same situation. Peter, you know better. You've literally been through this. God has given you visions and given you, ex and given you experiences to show you that it's not about clean and unclean and that everyone is welcome into the family of God. Not to mention the years he spent with Jesus and how many times he watched Jesus eat with all kinds of Gentiles throughout his ministry. So Peter, if you've had these experiences, you know better, you understand what you're doing here. Peter, what gives? Why in the world would you act this way and treat these Gentile brothers and sisters like they're nobody? We see it in verse 12. Four certain men came from James. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. Peter being Peter. Fear has always been an issue for him. And really, fear comes down to not trusting in God. When Peter would take his eyes off the Lord, when he would stop trusting in Jesus' power and protection and provision, that's when he found himself getting into trouble. In Matthew 14, the disciples are on a boat and they're out in the middle of the storm and they look out into the sea and here comes Jesus walking on the water. And everybody's freaked out. They think it's a ghost. They don't know what's going on. Peter says, Lord, if that's you, you call me. I can come walk on that water. I know I can. Jesus says, come on. Peter gets out of the boat. Who's getting out of that boat? Peter gets out of the boat. And he's walking on the water with Jesus. They're having this awesome, powerful moment. And then Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. Peter starts to take in the scenery and the wind and the waves and how scary everything was. It was scary when he got out of the boat, but he didn't think about it then, but he's thinking about it now and he begins to sink because he starts letting fear creep in and he stops trusting in Jesus. In Luke 22, they're at the Last Supper. Jesus says, someone's going to betray me. 
One of you, one of the 12 is going to betray me. And Peter stands up and says, I will never deny you. If all of these other jokers fall away, that doesn't matter. I'm with you to the end. I'm with you till death. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter says, not a chance. And just a couple of hours later, he's in a courtyard. And a little servant girl, 10, 12 years old, starts pointing out his accent. Starts saying, hey, I think I saw you with that Galilean. And he swears down in every which way, saying, I never knew him. He won't even speak the name of Jesus because he's so terrified. See, maturity and growth doesn't mean you never deal with the old stuff that you've been dealing with throughout your life. In Christianity, we don't get to take days off. If you struggle with sin, with doubt, with fear, whatever it is that you struggle with, that you have those things that hold you back, that weigh you down from walking with Christ, and you start to work on them, you start to focus, you start to say, Lord, take this from me, and you start to trust in him more and more, and you get yourself to a place where you say, you know what, I have defeated that sin, I have defeated that temptation, that's not a thing for many, me anymore, I'm fine. That's usually the day where Satan's going to come knocking, and you're going to fall. We don't take days off. We continue to trust, we continue to rely on God every day. We don't let up. Peter has grown and matured from that guy who was so fearful walking on the water and now he's proclaiming Christ and he's preaching to different Roman officials and saying one way or the other, even if you kill me, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Peter has grown and matured. He's leading guys, but there's still this part of him that has this fear of man thing. So Peter's decision to start living in this hypocritical way was based on fear. And it wasn't only affecting him, but it was affecting other Jewish believers. It was even affecting Barnabas. See, whoever you are, you have influence. You have influence with other people, with your family, with your friends, your work, in your church. You have influence on others. Your actions and your inactions matter and they can send out ripples of consequences as others see and hear the way that you live and the decisions that you make. Paul rightly understood that the situation that was happening here, this shift, this divide that was growing, was much more about who was, was, more, was about more than just who was sitting with who. This was a gospel issue. This was a matter of the truth of the gospel at work. And what we see is that if Peter and Barnabas can drift away from the gospel, if they can know the truth, understand the truth, live out the truth of the gospel, walk in line with the will of God for years and years, but then find themselves in a situation where they are counter to the gospel, that potential is for us, exists for us as well. And so what do we do? How do we keep ourselves from drifting? How do we keep ourselves from being sitting at the wrong table? writer of Hebrews is going to say in Hebrews 12 that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes like a horse running a race with blinders on. Don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Don't worry about what the world has to say and offer. You run your race. You fix your eyes on the end. The end is getting to Christ. The end is glorifying him. You fix your eyes on him and you keep on pursuing him. 
Because it is Christ who saves us. It is Christ who is sanctifying us, making us more and more like himself until that day when we finally get to meet him and stop running. We need to be putting ourselves into a position where we are feeding ourselves life-giving things. So you've got to ask yourself the question, is what you're binging on Netflix making you more like Christ? Is what you're listening to, is that podcast that you are hooked on, is that book you are reading, are these things feeding your soul and pointing you to Christ? Are you putting the word of God into your soul, into your heart? How's reading Galatians going? Like I said, we're doing a chapter every day throughout the week. We got a question in the back, we got a board in the back where we're asking questions each week, just kind of help us engage with one another. This week's question, what's been the hardest chapter to read in Galatians so far? What do you guys think? What's your opinion? Three, four. What else? Three and four? I think three's tough. Three was my answer because three is long and it's like right in the middle. It's Wednesday and it's a a Wednesday kind of chapter. It's long and wordy. Paul was getting, getting paid by the word on that one. We're reading the word every day trying to put God's word into our hearts, trying to see what God has to teach us, what God has to share for us. Because this is the written word of the God of the universe, the one who spoke existence into happening, gave us his word. And yet sometimes we don't even know where our Bibles are. I promise you, the more that you can open God's word, the more that you can put into your soul, the more it is going to clean out the garbage that we have within us. It's kind of like when you start eating clean, you start eating healthy, and you you cut out the fast food, you cut out the sugars, you cut out the, the bad stuff, you start eating real clean. It starts to affect the way your whole body works. That's what the Bible does. When we start to eliminate some of the trash and the fast food, the spiritual fast food, and we put in the good, nutritious word of God, it's going to clean out our insides. It's going to help us live cleaner. Only if we take the time to do it. Are we surrounding yourself with people who speak truth into your life? People who will call you to actually live into the life and faith that you claim to have. People who love you and want to see you thrive, even if that means they're going to have a hard conversation with you. Do you have those people in your life? Do you, have, do you give them enough access to the real you and not the fake you that you put the show on for other people? Do you give them access to the real you so that they can see those areas in your life and that they can speak into those areas so that you can grow? There are simple things we can be doing to keep ourselves from drifting away from the gospel. Because Paul loved Peter, because Paul loved the gospel and loved the unity of the brothers and sisters, he knows this division that is happening is about the truth of the gospel being lived out. That's what he says in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Cephas is Peter, I should have said that 20 minutes ago. He says, Peter, you're a Jew. You grew up Jewish. You've been around the law your whole life. Your fathers and mothers, your whole family, everyone for generations has been around the law your entire lives. Peter, you know you can't do it on your own. 
You know that you cannot fulfill the law, and now you want these Gentiles who know nothing about the law. They have no experience with it. Now you expect them to live under the law. Peter, what are you doing? See, Paul saw that this was not about seating arrangements. It wasn't about the, hospita- the, the conduct of hospitality Peter was showing. This was about being in step with, in line with, in sync with the gospel. Peter and everyone who followed him were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now, some might hear that and say, I thought this whole thing was about getting away from acting a certain right way, right? I mean, that's what, that's what we've been talking about in Galatians. The law is all about do's and don'ts, right? Grace isn't like that. Grace isn't about all the do's and don'ts. But now we're saying that it is, that, that there is a way to act and not act in relation to the gospel. I thought it wasn't about our actions. I thought it was about grace and mercy. Yes, amen. This isn't about do's and don'ts. This is about our heart and motivation and what the gospel actually does and how we respond to it. Because the gospel is about opening and inviting anyone and everyone into the family of God. Paul's going to say in chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about what that means and doesn't mean when we eventually get to chapter 3. It doesn't mean we're all just the same, so there's no distinction. But I can't wait to get to that. What he's saying is that the gospel unites us, all of us, under the same banner of grace. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come, regardless of background, age, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter who you are or where you have been, we all come to the cross looking for help. We all come as sinners in need of a Savior. The gospel welcomes all of us into the family of God. So any action, any decree, any doctrine or teaching that is going to try and bring disunity or put levels of hierarchy on those who are in Christ is at the very best a drastic misunderstanding of the gospel, but is probably more likely an intentional distortion aimed to cause division and destruction. What they were doing to the Gentile believers out of fear was like that scene in Forrest Gump where he gets on the bus. Can't sit here. Because you're too different. You aren't good enough. Without the circumcision, without the law, without the external actions, because you don't live the way I think you're supposed to live as a Christian, you can't truly be one of us. They were speaking with hidden faces. They were hiding the reality of the gospel. They were withholding and hiding the joy of living into the will and call of God on our lives. The freedom and beauty and fellowship and friendship and delight that the gospel delivers to us. God didn't send his son to die so that we could put our faith in him and then just live a miserable, mediocre existence for the rest of our lives until we go to go to meet him. No, quite the opposite. John 10.10, Jesus says he came into the world so that we would have life and life abundantly, life in excess, life overflowing, overflowing with enjoyment of the creation he has given us, with the life that he has given you, with the new relationship with himself, with the reconciliation that he has brought about by through Jesus' death on the cross. The gospel draws us closer to God, and with that comes a delight 
and enjoyment in obeying the will and direction of God in our lives. It's not a I have to, it's a I get to respond. I get to live into the ways in which the God of all existence has said, this is the best way to live. This is the best way to do marriage. This is the best way to do sex. This is the best way to have relationships. I'm going to show it to you. And because the gospel gives us grace and mercy, we can live into those things. And when we fail, not if, but when we fail, there is grace and mercy to pick us back up and say, okay, let's keep moving forward. But I'm going to show you what life abundant looks like. This God who gives us everything, and we know he is good. He has proven that he is good time and time again. We know he doesn't change, so we know he's still good today. And we know that whatever instruction, whatever law, whatever command we are given by God, it is for our good and for his glory because that's how he always works. The gospel releases us of the burden of trying to win and earn our way to God and instead frees us to enjoy him and his presence. It allows us to have hard conversations with one another, not to tear each other down, but so that we can build one another up so that we can walk in line with the God who made us and knows us and loves us. Paul's going to say in the passage we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, he says, I died to the law so that I can live to God. I died to trying to earn, trying to win, trying to impress. I died to trying to do it all myself. And in that death, I found life. How did he do that? By putting his faith in the life death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and accepting the righteousness given by Christ to those who would believe. And that chance, that ability, that reality is available to us today right in this moment. And I pray that today is that day for some of you. That you would, step, that you would stop trying to use the law, use your actions to earn your way to God, that you would realize there is no way for that to happen, but instead die to that exhausting, unfulfilling pursuit and instead find the freedom and the unity that belongs to you in and by and through the gospel. Peter was motivated by fear of man, fear of rejection. When in fact, had he stayed fixated on the gospel of and fixated on Jesus himself, these things could have been avoided. As the old hymn says, says, and we can close with this, I encourage you, I pray, brothers and sisters, that you would turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, our fears, our doubts, our worries, our self-made morality, our self-made abilities, our man-made crowns, all of it will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Now we know there is grace to be had. There is hope and forgiveness to be had. Never ending, never ceasing amount of grace and forgiveness and hope to be had. Lord, sometimes it is really hard to be a human. It's hard to live in this world. 
even for a group of Christians living together, it's hard. We do things intentional and otherwise to hurt each other. We tear each other down. God, I pray that you would help us to daily, regularly, moment by moment, rediscover, re-remind ourselves of the gospel. That we would find that hope and that forgiveness and that life there. That we would allow the gospel to filter every interaction we have. God, help us when we need to have hard conversations. Help us to have the boldness and courage to have them and the humility and discernment to hear that those hard things. That when someone comes to us, that we wouldn't get defensive. We wouldn't look to counterpunch. We can seek unity and restoration amongst each other reconciliation amongst each other. And we know that's available because that's what the gospel does. It offers us new life. It offers us reconciliation. It offers to bring peace where there is rebellion and pain and war. God, I pray that we would be a people who live into that, that your church around the world would be known as a place of reconciliation, a place of peace, and a place of hope and love and mercy and grace and justice and all the things that you are, all the things you have called us to be, all the things you have revealed to us in and through the gospel that we have had the pleasure to experience. I pray that those would be things that drive us, drive our relationships, drive our interactions, drive our lives. That we would rest in the reality that is pike grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can find new life. God, I pray that we would be able to rest in that reality, rest in the, the joys of the gospel, the enjoyment of the gospel. You have told us that we are the lights of the world. Help us to shine brightly and point others to you. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.